From Vermont Digger, I'm Mike Doherty. This is The Deeper Dig. All right. On Wednesday, our reporter Aidan Quigley was at the Chittenden County Superior Courthouse in Burlington, waiting for a verdict in one of the most high-profile cases in Vermont's history. I was actually about to go to MCS and get some snacks because I was anticipating a later night of jury deliberation. So right when I reached the elevator to hit the down button, I hear a little bit of a commotion back while the media was waiting outside of the courtroom. And I look down the hallway and I see an attorney or someone running running down the hallway in the other direction. I wasn't sure who it was, but things got kind of really tense after that, and all the media rushed into the courtroom. The families came up. We were all sitting outside waiting, and then we were all sitting inside the courtroom waiting for the verdict. Okay, please be seated. I got the sense that people really didn't know which way it was going to go, especially since it was a day and a half of deliberations. I think the fact that it took as long as it did to come to a conclusion means that the jury had some very serious questions to walk through in their deliberations, which makes sense on a trial of this, uh, this nature and in stature. Uh, so, Mr. Burnett, um, I did receive your note that the jury has reached a verdict. Eventually, the jury comes in and the judge asks, um, on the count of second-degree murder... Uh, the charge involving the second-degree murder of Cyrus... Shao, how did the jury find? And then the jury foreman stood up and said, guilty. Charge guilty of second-degree murder. Was that verdict unanimous? Yes. And then that was kind of the moment when, you know, if if one of the counts was going to be guilty, all of the second-degree murder counts were going to be guilty. They read each of the victims' names individually. Yeah, on the count of murder of Mary Harris... What, what do you find? And then the follow-up question would be on the insanity defense that the defense raised. Did the jury conclude that the defendant had failed to meet his burden of proof with regard to insanity? Yes. And was that decision unanimous? Yes. So say you all? Yes. Basically, did you find that he was not able to prove this defense, that Stephen Bourgoyne was not you know, insane at the time of this crash and then they said that he was not able to prove it you know the rest of the charges came out and then it was clear that it was uh, going to be what the prosecution was looking for our reporter alan keys covered the proceedings alan said that even though there are still some unanswered questions we know much more today than we did at the time of the crash that killed mary harris liam hale cyrus chow eli brookens and janie causey and led to the five second-degree murder charges against Stephen Burgoyne. We knew that there was a wrong way crash that happened on the interstate late at night on October 8th of 2016. Stephen Burgoyne, according to police, had been driving the wrong way at the interstate at a high rate of speed when he slammed into a Volkswagen Jetta, a 2004 Volkswagen Jetta, with the five teenagers inside who were returning from a concert in South Burlington at higher ground. We knew that the five, past, the five people inside, the five teenagers inside the vehicle, had been killed and that Stephen Burgoyne had been taken to the hospital with uh, extensive injuries as well. We also know that he had, at the scene, he had stolen the police cruiser of the first responding officer, a Williston Police Department member, who got out of his cruiser at the scene to try and help the teens in their car that had overturned and was on fire. And then Burgoyne took that cruiser, fled southbound on the interstate going the right way, the correct way, and then turned around and came back after going a very short distance, driving at over 100 miles an hour and slamming back into his pickup truck that he had been driving earlier that was in the earlier crash, the initial crash, as well as several other vehicles, injuring 
other people who had kind of come, come upon the scene, the original scene, and had pulled over to the side of the road and injuring um, some of those folks as well. And can you describe like what the scale of this event was? I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that was fairly unusual for Vermont. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, the highest number of murder counts in one case in the history of Vermont. Wow. So it was about two and a half years ago. Yep. How did we get to this trial that started a couple weeks ago? Um, there's been many motions and court filings over the last two and a half years. Some of the most significant have included, like, there was a, the motion for a change of venue. Because the case had received so much media attention in Vermont that the defense had moved for a change of venue to move it out of Chittenden County, which is, the crash took place in Williston. But ultimately, the judge decided that the case had received so much media attention statewide that it would make not all that much difference because the coverage had been pretty extensive of the case. So the trial did take place in, in Chittenden County. And they had set aside quite a long time for jury selection in the case that took place at the end of April and into the beginning of May. And it only took three days to impanel the juror, which is, I think was quicker than a lot of people thought. Why did they think it was going to take a long time? Just because of the extensive coverage that the case had received, that to get a fair and impartial jury who hadn't either heard about the case and formed opinions about it or would be fair and impartial on the matter. All right, uh, we're here on the record in the cases involving Stephen Burgoyne, specifically Dockists 3814-1016 and 3798-1016. Can you tell me about what general cases the prosecution and the defense laid out at the beginning of the trial? The prosecution case, the opening days, was, was kind of setting the scene about what happened the night of the crash. The defendant stayed in the passing lane for over 2.2 miles. And as he sped north the wrong way, there was a VW Jetta coming south on 89 in the travel lane carrying five young people. The defense case was pretty much that Stephen Burgoyne was insane at the time. That was their argument. They did not contest that it was him behind the wheel of the pickup truck that crashed into the teen's car driving the runway. And they did not contest that it was him who took the Williston police officer's vehicle. This trial, however, is not about whether or not Stephen Burgoyne drove his truck the wrong way on 89 and hit the jet and killed him. It did. That's the hard this trial is about why it happened. What was going on in Stephen Burgoyne's head on that tragic night back in October of 2016? Why in the world would he do such a thing? They said that he was insane at the time. And they had an expert, a defense expert, that they had hired who had issued that opinion, concluded that. And they also had the prosecution's former expert who had also determined or concluded that Mr. Burgoyne was insane at the time of the crash. The evidence will be that Stephen Burgoyne was totally psychotic and delusional at the time of the crash. The evidence will be that he was, in every sense, insane at the time of the crash. All the evidence points to that conclusion. The prosecution countered that they believed he was not insane at the time, and they had their own expert who said that he was sane, and they pointed to the fact that their expert had examined Stephen Burgoyne about six weeks after the incident, as opposed to the two other experts who examined Burgoyne several months 
after the incident. Dr. Cotton will tell you that in his opinion, the defendant was sane at the time of the offenses. So they argued to the jury that his was more of a contemporaneous review of or examination of Burgoyne and that it was more relevant. What's the significance of this insanity question? Why was that the main topic of discussion in those statements? Well, I think it was because the defense did not challenge the facts of the case about who was behind the wheel of the car at the time. And they would, did not argue that there was like a problem with the vehicle or anything to that effect. So it just came down to his state of mind. So if the jury were to find him insane, then he wouldn't be guilty of these second-degree murder charges? Correct. He would be found not guilty by reason of insanity or not criminally responsible for the charges that he faced. And then there would have been a process where the court would have determined what type of care he would have needed in the future, which could range anything from being released to needing care for a substantial period of time at a psychiatric facility. So tell me about the opening days of the trial. Well, it was the people who had come upon the crash who were the first witnesses to testify, the motorists who were on the interstate that night traveling south on Interstate 89 in Williston. And they described a scene that they termed, they used words like a war zone or Armageddon to describe what they had seen. Yeah, it was horrible. I felt like there were many things on fire. There were people screaming. I assumed that there were many people injured or killed. Um, I... It was, it was like a war zone. I mean, I'd say that. Not, I've actually, you know, have gone to one. I'm trying to say that lightly, but it was incredibly disturbing. Both in the initial, the wreckage of the initial crash, as well as the scene of Burgoyne driving back to the crash site in the cruiser and slamming um, into his pickup truck that had been left behind, as well as the other vehicles. I can hear the engine. The, the loud whack of metal hitting metal, and I see a, a car going up, you know, in the air towards me. Um, that's what I, all I could, and then from there I just remember diving, and I didn't see, I wasn't able to watch it as it came closer to me. Um, there was a gentleman from Montpelier who was one of the, I believe, the first person on the scene, and he talked about getting out of his car when using his cell phone flashlight to help warn other cars of the crash. And he also talked about uh, seeing Stephen Burgoyne at the crash scene, and he, he mentioned that uh, the one thing that Stephen Burgoyne told him at the crash scene was that um, he had just simply lost control. And that was one of the few statements we had from Burgoyne, from a witness at the scene who he talked to at the crash site. And some of the witnesses talked about being in their cars and seeing Burgoyne driving up on the scene and just leaning over into the passenger seat from the driver's seat and not thinking they were going to survive. At least one person talked about bailing out of her car and going up into the woods on the side and uh, thinking that she, was, she had actually been killed. Wow. After a long time of standing there holding on the tree and crying, I, I went down quickly once. I didn't look. I just... I just wanted to get my coat. I was getting cold, and then I went back up, and then I heard some more noises and more people screaming, and I could see people running and screaming and ducking in front of my car. Um, they were hiding from whatever was exploding in the cruiser. 
Can you tell me a little bit more about what some of the first responders talked about? Yeah, the police officers who responded to the scene, I mean, it was, it was very late at night, so that the first officer who responded, uh, Williston police officer Eric Shepard, talked about going to, trying to open the door of the Jetta uh, that had the teens inside, and he frantically tried to open the door and was knocking on the windows to try to get the teens' attention, but they had been too severely injured and the vehicle was on fire, and he talked about trying to open the doors and the handles and the vehicle was just so hot from the fire that he could not open open them. And did you attempt to extinguish the fire? I did. I started right at the engine compartment right at the source and tried to knock everything down as best I could. And were you successful? No, it's very tough to knock out a vehicle fire with a uh, smallish fire extinguisher, unfortunately. Okay. There were other responders who talked about coming upon the scene and like like the other people they talked about it being a, a war zone with so many cars being damaged and the fires that they were seeing now what did you observe there was a lot more debris um quite honestly it looked like a, a bomb went off or a war zone um i was kind of in shock at all that what happened but uh um there was a, there was more victims now that we had uh, injured. There was a car on its side in the ditch off to the the slow passing lane, but it was in the ditch on its side with somebody inside of it. They had dash cam videos of Burgoyne driving the Williston police cruiser after he took it. So when you saw that your blue lights changed, indicating that your vehicle was moving, what did you do? I asked who has my car. Okay. And again, how did you know that somebody had your car? Because uh, it had, it was moving, creeping slowly, and the lights had changed, and I kind of made a sound, kind of like <laughs> thinking, "Oh man, I left my car in drive for a second. And went, oh, this is not the time for that." Right. Okay. And did anybody respond to you asking who had your car? No, no. And I said it again. Okay. No response. And so, what happened next? Uh, the vehicle picked up pace, at which point I realized somebody had stolen my vehicle. It was kind of an eerie scene because it was very quiet and there was no other cars on the road and it was just driving down the road for a couple miles with no sound except the engine roaring. As he got up to the next exit in Richmond, there was a police officer in the turnaround area and had flashing blue lights waiting to intercept him. And right around that point is where Burgoyne turned around on the interstate and started heading north in the southbound lane back to the crash site. And you're seeing all this happen. Yeah, and you're seeing all this happen. As he gets back to the crash site, as he's driving back north in the southbound lane on the interstate, he hit him back to the crash scene. You can see him dodging cars, or at least um, passing cars, or who had been pulled over on the side of the road, seeing him coming at them. And you also see in the as he approaches the crash site, the engine of the car, really of the cruiser, really starts to thunder and picks up speed as he gets to over 100 miles an hour. And you see the glow of the scene. It's like all these lights going on from emergency lights to car vehicles. And it gets up to, like, is it the point three seconds of the crash where he slams into his pickup truck and then the car video stops. So you don't actually see the impact of the crash, but you see to the very last moment almost. And you see the car on fire on the side, the jet on fire inside the side of the median and people racing to help. Wow. 
What was it like watching that video? It was very quiet in the courtroom. Even Stephen Burgoyne was watching it. He didn't show any emotion when he was watching it. He seemed to be just taking it all in, as everybody in the courtroom was. And there was um, some members of the families who couldn't watch it. They were, like, looking down. There were other family members of the victims who were holding hands and hugging each other as the video was playing. Good morning. The defense comes up and makes their case. Uh, who do they bring? Their case rested largely on the, on the two experts. Their initial defense psychiatrist, Dr. David Russ Marin, who testified that uh, when he examined, he did an extensive examination over several days of Mr. Burgoyne, and he found that he was insane at the time of the crash. He had bipolar disorder with psychotic features, uh, rapid cycling, meaning uh, a certain number of episodes per year. That was his diagnosis. You believe that he lacked the adequate capacity either to, let's start with first, do you believe he could appreciate the criminality of his conduct? No. And the defense had argued that he believed he was on a government mission, and over the days leading up to the incident, that he um, had been receiving signals on um, his electronic devices, like computers and iPads and cell phone, and even the radio in his car, um, that had been directing him to carry out this top-secret mission. He did not intend to go the wrong direction and kill people or kill himself. He did not intend that. He was doing the same thing he had been doing for two days, which is driving around frantically, trying to preserve his life, trying to understand what he had to do next uh, to be safe. The last day was primarily about his safety. Were they going to kill him? Were they going to kill Izzy? Uh, were they going to burn down his house? He was, uh, he was trying to be safe, and he was in such a state of psychotic frenzy and confusion uh, and, in the th and, and listening to the directions, his inferences from uh, the radio and lights in the environment, that this is a simple psychotic error, not an intentional act. The other witness who was called after Russ Marin was Dr. Rena Kapoor. She was the expert who was a, the forensic psychiatrist originally hired by the prosecution who determined that Burgoyne was insane at the time. And when the prosecution dropped her as a result of that, the defense called her as a witness to bolster their case and also bolster Ross Marin's opinion that um, Mr. Burgoyne was insane at the time. But she actually had a different diagnosis. How, did, how was it different? Her, her diagnosis was that Burgoyne had a personality disorder, and she used the terms with traits of borderline personality disorder and paranoid disorder. She said that condition makes a person predisposed to becoming psychotic under stress. And the stress in this case was that Mr. Burgoyne, around the time of the incident, had uh, very serious financial troubles, as well as uh, an ongoing custody dispute with his ex-girlfriend and the mother of his child. Those stressors then triggered a psychotic episode, including paranoid ideation. The prosecution to rebut that called their own defense expert who, who said that he was sane, and there was uh, lots of testimony about that and how his testimony differed from the previous two from the defense. Was this man in an acute psychotic episode? Absolutely not. Was he out of touch with reality? Absolutely not. Was he hallucinating? He was not hallucinating. Was he delusional? He was not delusional. Tell me about how things wrapped up. 
How did they kind of come around to closing their arguments before the court? There were the closing arguments where the, the two sides, the prosecution said that, um, as they had in their opening argument, that he was saying at the time he knew what he was doing, and he was just upset or in a rage or even suicidal at the time of the crash over the, the financial difficulties and the custody dispute. The state has proven in each of these charges that Mr. Burgoyne was aware of every decision he made, and he ignored the risks of each of those decisions. The defense really hit on the insanity defense, and really using the fact that the prosecution's own expert had determined that Mr. Burgoyne was insane at the time. They reviewed all the statements uh, that were sent to them um, where people were saying things about Mr. Burgoyne, um, and they continued to look at that, and in particular Dr. Kapoor, really challenged herself and challenged Mr. Bickerman with that evidence and found that the evidence was um, that he was psychotic at the time. And if he was psychotic at the time, he couldn't appreciate the criminality of his conduct and he couldn't conform his conduct to the requirements of law. The jury deliberated for about 11 hours over parts of three days before returning their verdict on Wednesday. We found Steve Burgoyne guilty. And was that verdict unanimous? Yes. Do the attorneys wish any other polling of the jury? No, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. Okay. Aiden, what happens in the moments after the verdict comes down? People file out of the courtroom, the media kind of. The most media that I've seen at an event in Vermont, I think it's safe to say, tons of cameras, tons of you know, print reporters um, just waiting outside the courtroom. Sarah George was the first one to come in and speak with us. The uh, prosecutor. Yep, the prosecutor. She said, you know, that she felt fantastic about the verdict and that the jury got it right. I feel like the state really did um, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this was second-degree murder and it was nothing less than that. The defense attorney, Robert Kadams, came over and said that, you know, his, his client was disappointed in the result. Obviously, we think we presented the overweight, overwhelming medical evidence uh, with regard to the sanity issue, um, and uh, we're disappointed uh, that the jury uh, found otherwise. And that he was a very different person now in 2019 than he was at the time of the crash in 2016. Family members also came over and spoke to the media and really stressed that they were hoping that the focus kind of shifts from Stephen Burgoyne to the teenagers themselves who, who lost their lives. We'd like it to be about the kids now and no more about Stephen Burgoyne. They were beautiful kids. Does the verdict make a difference? It makes me feel that, I mean, you can speak to that too, but what I think is that at least he's not going to hurt anybody else's kids now. And that makes a difference to me. It helps. At this time, we would ask you to refocus the energy towards the incredible young people whose lives were needlessly and tragically taken from us. This is the end result of an extremely long-term process to get here. You know, the crash was in October 2016, and now it's May 2019. So it's been it's been three years. And Sarah George, the prosecutor, kind of touched on this. When she afterwards, she thanked the family for you know, walking through this long, drawn-out process and getting to a day where, you know, in her eyes, justice was finally served. Alan, where do we go from here? What are the possible next outcomes? Mm-hmm. Well, there'll be a series of post-trial motions filed. 
um, such as a motion to set aside the verdict or a motion for judgment or acquittal, acquittal, basically saying that the it's a miscarriage of justice. There wasn't enough to even sustain the charges that the jury convicted Mr. Burgoyne on. Those motions, I've just talked to some experts, they say are rarely, rarely granted. And then they will follow on to sentencing. And each of the murder counts, there are five murder counts in this case, second-degree murder, carry a possible sentence of 20 years to life. So a big issue will be, will the judge impose and will the prosecutor seek consecutive sentences, basically stacking one of those on top of the other to get to a sentence as much as 100 years to life? Or will the sentences be sought by the prosecution and imposed by the judge be concurrent, which could knock it down to, I guess, as little as 20 years to life? Following that process would be an appeal to the Vermont Supreme Court. And again, talking to the experts today, they say that that process could take anywhere from two to three years from today to getting an opinion issued by the Vermont Supreme Court regarding the convictions. I wonder, just kind of from your own perspective, was this trial in any way different from other trials that you've covered in Vermont? Well, it was certainly much longer than most trials in Vermont. And also the use of, um, you know, lots of, there was dash cam videos that were radio, that really brought people to the scene of what happened. I think that has a big impact on the, on the jury actually seeing uh, Mr. Burgoyne driving the wrong way um, and then returning to the site and seeing the actual crash aftermath in almost real time. I just think there was, I mean, there were five teenagers who died in this case. And I, I just think that the, um, the impact of losing five lives in one crash, I think, um, was obviously very significant. Got it. Thanks, Alan. All right, thanks. Find coverage of the Stephen Burgoyne trial by Alan Keyes, Aidan Quigley, and Mark Johnson at vtdigger.org. You're listening to The Deeper Dig. Every Friday, we go deep on one key story that we've been following. You can hear more episodes at vtdigger.org or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks this week to WCAX, Local 22, and Vermont Public Radio for helping to share footage from the courtroom. We use music this week by Blue Dot Sessions and Poddington Bear. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Digger Newsroom. Have a nice weekend.